You know, my family and I have spent a lot of time on the road through the years, a lot of windshield time, we call it. And I bet we've, we've touched just about every corner, north, south, east, west of, of the country, been on most of the major highways and interstates. I remember one trip we, uh, we spent, went, drove 7,000 miles in three and a half weeks, and, and far west is Phoenix and as far east as New York City. And, um, you know, when I'm driving, a lot of times I like to, to look down the road. <clears throat> you, you, know, you spend a lot of time thinking and just daydreaming. Sometimes we'll listen to music or books on tape, but often it's just quiet. <clears throat> and I'll just kind of imagine what's coming ahead. And, and when you drive across some states like, you know, Nebraska or Kansas or Iowa, a lot of times you can see way up ahead like a storm brewing, a big thunderstorm. You can see the lightning in the sky. You can see the dark clouds. You know you're headed into a storm. You may not know when. Is it going to be 30 minutes? Is it going to be an hour or more? You know, we'll get out our phone, and if we have a cell signal, we'll try to see is there any dangerous weather in the area? Should we stop? Should we take a different route? But we know it's coming. <clears throat> we, don't, we, know it's, we don't know how bad it'll be or, uh, you know, whether maybe it'll pass on through before we actually get there. Sometimes that happens, you know. By the time you get there, the roads are wet and there's no storm. But we can see it. We can see it. You know, sometimes I'll pass the time by kind of imagining what life must have been like for the early set settlers heading west, you know. Um, we have something in common, by the way, with those families traveling by horse and wagon. As we drive down the road, there's, there's a limit to what we can see ahead. And there was for them, too. We call that point beyond which we can't see the horizon. The horizon. And the horizon added an element of adventure to their lives, and it kind of does to ours, too, in a, in a different way. I mean, they were exploring parts unknown. Well, if you're driving down a new route or to a new place you've not been before, you're exploring parts unknown as well. Has it ever occurred to you that the call of the horizon has had quite an impact on the world at large? I mean, it's, it's caused explorers to venture into the unknown areas of land and sea. Intellectual horizons keep research scientists glued to their laboratories. And spiritual horizons also beckon us onward in our pursuit of God. God's glory, God's love, God's purpose. Destinations that we've never seen and we're trying to find deeper places and more places and new facts about God. And this enticement of the horizon keeps the faithful marching on, doesn't it? We know that we don't understand everything there is to understand about God. We still have a lot of questions. Uh, I don't know about you, but I look forward to the time one day when we'll be able to meet Christ face to face and have all of our questions unanswered, all the whys and why nots and how comes and whens and so forth. But in faith, we continue to travel toward the horizon of His will and His purpose. Some 2,000 years ago, there was a fledgling community of faith uh, that found itself looking out into an unknown and frightening horizon. We've been talking about them. It's the community of believers that were Jewish Jews that got saved and were now facing all kinds of persecution under Rome. And as they thought about this, they could continue traveling toward this horizon, this uncertain horizon, or they could throw in the towel 
Stop believing. Give up. Settle for a life of temporal comfort, but no promise of reward and blessing. As this small community of faith, some 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, contemplated all the suffering that they were facing, we know from history that the persecution at the hands of Nero, Nero was, was fiddling while they all suffered and the city was falling apart all around and early Christians were taking the blame for the uh, problems that Rome was facing. Well, as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews, we come to a really short section this morning, just three verses. And yet these three verses pack a powerful punch as we talk about unshakable faith, trusting God in, in trying times. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 14. As we go through the text, I want you to think about what unexplained crisis you might be facing. You may not be facing one now, but all of us undoubtedly have had times in life when we've had something negative, unexpected happen in our life. And statistically, I would venture to guess that a vast majority of people in this room are facing some type of crisis to one degree or another, even right now. Of course, all of us are facing this global crisis of the virus. But what unknown mystery lies ahead in your life? Maybe it's an uncertain and threatening horizon that's bearing down on you very, very fast. If you're contemplating giving up, if your faith is wavering, you're not alone. And this message from Hebrews chapter 4 is for you. The writer reminds us that there's an open door for us in the heavens that leads us directly into the presence of an advocate who's always there for us, always waiting, always interceding for us, always available. He's our priest, our high priest to be more precise, something that these Jewish Christians would have been very familiar with from their Jewish customs and traditions. So I'm asking the question this morning for all of us, have you seen your priest lately? Now, if you come from a Catholic background, that has a particular meaning to you because you're accustomed to the same type of interaction with the Creator that the Jews were in Old Testament times. It had to be through a human mediator, through a priest. But as we're going to find out this morning, we have an everlasting high priest who's opened up a new and living way for us and we don't have to go through uh, someone here on earth. So let's start with the description. You know, one of my Greek professors 30 years ago said, the picture of Jesus Christ as high priest is the most distinctive theme of Hebrews, and it is central to the theology of the book. We're going to come back to this theme of the high priest again next week in a message I'm working on right now in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But here we just sort of get introduced to the topic, and actually he's already introduced it in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, but he's going to talk about first a description of this high priest. And the first thing he says is he is great. He is, he is great. Let's look at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Let's just stop there for a moment. Now, seeing then is literally therefore having. That is, in light of the available rest that he's been talking about and that we talked about last week from uh, chapter 4 earlier on, 
in light of this rest that's available to us, what should we do? And he, and he introduces this by a reminder that we have this great high priest. Now, we use the word great in English, frankly, to describe almost anything, right? And it was a great game. Did you see that great game? Oh, that was great food. I love that food. Uh, man, we've got some great friends. They're great friends of ours. Or, man, we had a great time. Or, that was a great sermon. That's my favorite one, by the way. <laughs> In English, it basically has the nuance of sort of better than good, but not quite excellent. It's great. But in Greek, the word has a, a more specific meaning. In Greek, it's the word megas. Megas. It's very common. It's used 242 times in the New Testament. And it has the idea of exceedingly great or strong or important. It's where we get the English word mega. Now, mega in English is something we can kind of relate to, right? I mean, when we say something is mega, that gets our attention a little more, right? You know, mega bucks, right? That's a lot more than just a lot of money. It's a whole lot of money, right? Or mega hurricane. Man, that's, that's a bigger than all the usual hurricanes. Or megaplex theaters has a lot more screens than just any old ordinary theater. Or what about this? Mega shark. You remember the movie in 2018, The Meg? Remember that? I love this screenshot of the international trailer just to kind of, it really illustrates the, 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 the nuance of the word megas in Greek. I'm sure this was furthest from their mind, but it is a good visual picture. So here you've got a little diver, then a great white shark, and then you've got a mega shark, right? Does that kind of give the idea of what we're talking about here? A great high priest, a mega high priest. And that would have gotten the attention of the original readers. It's sort of like he's in a class by himself. This word megas is the word that Paul chose to use in 1 Corinthians 13 under the inspiration of the Spirit when he was describing love. Do you remember this passage? And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Megas, same word, megas. In other words, the supreme characteristic of the Christian life that encompasses all others is love. And so when we see that Jesus is our great high priest, he means he is a high priest like no other. He's one of a kind, the ultimate, if you will, the greatest high priest. You know, the readers were very familiar with the Jewish priesthood and the concept of the Jewish high priest, but he points out that they and we now have the greatest high priest in the history of mankind. And, and what makes him great? He's great because he's God. He's God. The great high priest is none other than Jesus, not an angel or Moses or Aaron or anyone in the line of Aaron. He's going to talk about Aaron next week. Or, I mean, he's going to talk about it in the next section. We're going to talk about it next week. This one whom the readers were contemplating abandoning, sort of turning their backs on, is the same Son of God who had paid the penalty for their sins and given them eternal life and in whom they had placed their faith. And he wanted to, the writer wants to remind us that 
the, the, the one who saved them from the penalty of sin so that their home in heaven is secure, that they have the present possession of eternal life, is still available to them to help. All the other priests in Jewish history were an avenue to approaching Yahweh, God, indirectly. But in Christ, we have direct access to the creator of the universe, God in the flesh. Notice he calls him the Son of God. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, clearly pointing to his deity. Remember what God had said about Jesus in Matthew 17. Remember the Peter, James, and John and Jesus go up on the mountain and Jesus is transfigured before them. The glory of God is manifest to them through Jesus. And then God speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. This is God that we're dealing with here. Not just any ordinary human mediator. Do you remember the story of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus when he died? There's a conversation that John records in John chapter 11 between Jesus and Martha. And Jesus says to Martha, if you remember, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then Martha responds, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. See, when we place our faith in Jesus, we're not just placing our faith in some human prophet or religious leader or someone who's going to do his best to help us out of this plight. He's not a president or a prime minister or a global leader. He is God in the flesh. We have to understand that. You cannot place your faith in Jesus if you think He's just like any other man. You know He's unique. You may not understand the full deity of Christ. You may not be able to write a theology book on the subject. I was saved when I was six years old. I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. But here's what I knew. I knew He was alive. He had died and He was alive. And that made Him something special. And I knew that God loved the world so much that He sent His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish. Jesus put it this way. In John 10, I and my Father are one. We are one. Now, the Trinity is one of those doctrines that is foundational to orthodoxy, meaning to proper doctrine, to sound doctrine, to correct doctrine. Uh, you cannot deny the Trinity and have sound doctrine. But it's one of those doctrines, too, that we don't really have an easy way to define. Uh, one of my projects in my Ph.D. studies was to come up with a definition of the Trinity, and it's hard because it's, a, it's an antinomy, anti-opposite, namas, law. It's kind of contrary to logic, against the law, so to speak. Again, it means contrary to logic. So it's one of those things that we understand three things. And we understand one thing. But it's hard for us to understand how you can be three and one at the same time. And, you know, for 2,000 years, the church has been trying to explain this concept of the Trinity. There's an ancient diagram that I like to use in classes that goes like this. Uh, it's been around for centuries. So you've got the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. So we can use all kinds of analogies. You know, people have used water, ice, and, and steam. 
Uh, they've used, you know, a man can be a father, a son, and a brother. There's all kinds of analogies, but really all of them really fall short of the true impact of this notion that when we trust in Christ, we're trusting in God in the flesh, the most powerful creator of the universe. And this is who the writer wants us to know, is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. The definition that I've adopted through the years, just because I haven't found a better way to say it, is by Lewis Berry Chafer. I use this in my Christology classes. And he says, the Trinity is composed of three united persons without separate existence. So completely united as to form one God, yet the divine nature subsists in three distinctions, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the writer says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, who better to help us in the midst of trials than God Himself, God the Son, God in the flesh. But he describes Him even more here. Not only is He great, Megas, and God, the Son of God, He's also active. He's also active. As I mentioned in the next section of Hebrews, which we're going to study together next week, the writer uh, continues this discussion of the high priesthood and of Jesus as our high priest by bringing up Aaron. You know, Aaron is best known as the head of the Jewish priesthood. He was a descendant of Levi and the older brother of Moses, three years older. Aaron first appears on the historical scene as Moses' assistant and spokesman in response to God's command. And so Aaron goes out to meet Moses at the Mount of God, and he then takes him back and reintroduces him to the Jewish community that was enslaved in Egypt at the time. And then later during the wilderness wanderings, Aaron, as the high priest of the Jewish people, would enter the, the earthly tabernacle. Remember, they set up the tabernacle, the traveling tabernacle in the wilderness. And, and he would enter in to minister in the presence of God on behalf of the Jewish people. The writer here in Hebrews is frequently hearkening back to the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness because there are a lot of parallels to what the first century Jewish Christians were contemplating doing and were experiencing. But Aaron would enter in to represent the people, and then he would emerge from God's presence and mingle once again among the people. His task was done for that moment. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to see and his readers to see that this was not the experience of our great high priest Jesus. He says, He has passed through the heavens through the lower heavenlies, up through the atmosphere, and into the very presence of God. Remember, Paul talks about the three heavens. He's in the very presence of God to appear on our behalf. And he didn't appear there just to minister briefly and then return to earth and mingle with us again. He actively ministers and continuously ministers in God's presence bringing us into the very presence of God. Now, He will come back someday, and when He comes back, He will set aside His office of priesthood. It won't be necessary anymore, and He will then take on the role of king, and we will have direct access to Christ as king. So, remember the four offices of Christ. I think we've touched on this before. Christ came as prophet during His earthly ministry. He is now serving as priest. He will return as king, and then as we talked about in our first hour today, he will one day sit on the throne and act as judge, prophet, priest, king, and judge. So he is going to come back, but unlike Aaron, he doesn't go in and out repeatedly or once a year on the Day of Atonement as the Jews practiced. He, he goes in and he's sitting there on the job 
24-7. Remember how the writer began his letter back in chapter 1. Who, Jesus, who being in the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, of God's glory and God's person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, what did He do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And, you know, we sung earlier about Him standing in heaven, and we know from Acts chapter 7 that sometimes Christ does stand on our behalf to defend like He did Stephen. Remember that? Stephen saw Christ standing. So we know that his, his position is as our high priest sitting at the right hand of God. That's not David's kingly throne. He will take that throne when he returns in bodily form at the second coming. But right now he's sitting at the throne as our advocate and our intercessor. And I believe, as we saw in Acts 7, sometimes he stands up from that throne when he needs to to defend us. Later on in the letter, the writer would put it this way, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, because he always lives to make intercession for us. He's active. He's an active high priest, an ongoing high priest, a perpetual high priest. Paul said this in Romans 8, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. That's his job. John said, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he's great, he's God, he's active, but he's also relatable. He's relatable. You know, Jesus experienced every area of temptation in life that we do. Of course, you know, his temptations took on different forms. You know, he's not tempted to eat too much ice cream or cheat on his seventh grade algebra test, right? But it's the same essence. He experienced similar temptations in the same way that we're tempted to do things that are contrary to God's will. That's what temptation is. If you go back to our text here in verse 15, he says, we do not have a high priest who can not sympathize. So he can sympathize, right? He's relatable. Now, when we use the word sympathize in English, we often think of pity or compassion and sometimes we'll distinguish between sympathy and empathy with the idea being that if you've experienced something firsthand, you can empathize, but otherwise all you can do is have sympathy. But it's a little bit different in the Greek word. The Greek word is sympatheo. It's actually a cognate, again, where we get directly transliterating letter for letter our English word sympatheo or sympathy. But in Greek it means to suffer along with to suffer along with. It's only used twice in the entire New Testament, both times in Hebrews. It's used later on in chapter 10 where the writer says that the readers had shared in his sufferings, had suffered along with him, in other words, when he was arrested. So whoever the writer of Hebrews was, I tend to believe it was Paul, but officially we know that it's anonymous. Uh, that's one of those questions I want to ask when I get to heaven. Who wrote Hebrews? Um, and, uh, whoever, but whoever it was, he had experienced the same kinds of sufferings of being arrested and persecuted uh, that the Hebrew Christians had experienced, to suffer along with. Now that kind of gives it a little more weight, doesn't it? We do not have a high priest who cannot suffer along with us. He can suffer along with us. He can feel our pain in ways that Aaron or any other earthly priest could never do. Jesus understands us. He sympathizes with us. 
and he overcame more extreme temptation himself. Some 800 years before the time of Christ when he was on earth, Isaiah the prophet had foretold of Jesus' sufferings. He said, He is despised and rejected by men, by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. In other words, he's been there. And not only has he been there, he's endured much worse. He's endured much worse. Notice the writer tells us he was in all points tempted as we are. See, only someone who has fully resisted temptation at every turn can know the full extent of the force of temptation. Since Jesus endured every temptation successfully, He experienced every temptation to a greater extreme than we ever will because we yield to it so often. We give in. In other words, Satan does not have to use all of his demonic powers to tempt us. Yet he did with Christ. Every trick in his bag of tricks. They got worse and worse, the temptation did, yet Jesus never gave in. A few years ago, I was on a speaking engagement on the East Coast, and they put me up in a, it was a conference, and they put me up in a house on the beach, or on, on the, right on the beach, or actually one block off the beach. And one afternoon, I had the afternoon off, and I thought, I'm going to walk down to the beach and just take a, long, take a walk on the, on the beach. And so I kept walking and walking, and I finally came to this place where the beach ended, and there was these huge black rocks that jutted out into the ocean. And if I was going to keep going, I'm going to have to climb over these rocks that were kind of slippery and jagged. And so I just kind of sat down, and then after a few moments, I turned around and went back up to where my uh, condo uh, was or house was. But as I think back on that experience, you know, I watched the waves beat against those huge rocks along the shore. And they never moved. The waves would hit it and they would splash up and foam up and bounce off of it. But I also saw smaller rocks, little pebbles, that as the waves came in were picked up by the waves and moved and tossed, but not by the, not, not, not the large black boulders. The waves had no effect on them. As I think back on that experience, I realized the pebbles would never know the full power and force of the waves because they always end up being swept up with them. Well, similarly, Jesus took the full force of Satan's temptations, yet he never yielded. By contrast, we'll never know Satan's full power because he's never had to use it all to get us to move because, you know, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. So he can relate. So not only is he our, our great high priest, he's God, he's active, always on the job, he's relatable, he's suffered the same types of sufferings, but he's perfect. He's perfect. I mean, what more can we ask for in an advocate or a high priest, right? Perfect. I mean, think about it. If you needed a lawyer, wouldn't you want to hire one that had never lost a case? If you needed a surgeon, wouldn't you want one who'd never lost a patient? If you needed a coach, wouldn't you want one who'd never lost a game? Right? Notice what the writer says. He was tempted in all ways, just as we are yet without sin. He's perfect. He is perfect. The Bible tells us this over and over again. Paul said, God had made him who knew no sin 
to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. See, the only way to become righteous enough to get into heaven is to have Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us, given to us, credited to our account. Because we can work hard, try hard, do everything we possibly can to muster up enough goodness, but it'll always fall short because we're born sinners. We don't become sinners the first time we sin. We sin because that's what sinners do. It's in our blood. So we need a blood transfusion, so to speak. We need Christ's righteousness imputed to us. So God took His eternal Son, come in the flesh, born of a virgin, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, knew no sin, and He's the only one with enough room on His shoulders to pay the penalty for the sins of mankind. Peter put it this way, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow His steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. John said this, you know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him there is no sin. So in the description, we saw that the high priest that we have access to is great, Megos. He's God, the Son of God. He's active, always on the job, interceding. He's relatable. He's gone through the same suffering. And most of all, he's perfect. So what are we supposed to do in light of such a high priest? Well, that brings us to the direction. The direction. And basically, the writer says we should persevere. I mean, it should be self-evident, honestly, what an amazing high priest we have. And with a high priest like that, who's always on the job, always interceding, never makes a mistake, totally understands what we're going through, who wouldn't want to keep trusting Him? I mean, frankly, to shift our trust from Him to anything else is going to be a step down. And yet that's what these first century Jewish Christians were contemplating doing. That's what many Christians, I believe, are doing today. As we face more and more suffering and impositions and persecution and limitations on our freedom to worship God, we've got to recognize that perseverance is the order of the day. We need to persevere in our faith. Notice he says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, what do we do? Hold fast our confession. Hold fast our confession. The ministry of Jesus in this heavenly sanctuary as our faithful ongoing, ever-present high priest should motivate us to keep trusting Him. We've talked about this word confession before. I won't put it on the screen, but it just means it's homo legeo, meaning to say the same thing as. So a confession is agreeing with God, to agree with God about who He is and what He's done for us. So we, in a sense, when we trust Christ and Him alone as our only one who can save us, we have made that confession, right? And now we need to hold fast to that confession. Um, you know, if He can save us from the penalty of sin, is there anything He can't save us from? That's the idea there. Later on again, and we've come back to this time and again in chapter 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because He who promised is faithful. He's faithful. I mean, I love this verse in, in Romans 8. Paul says, For He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? I mean, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything He can't handle? Jeremiah the prophet uh, asked this, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Jeremiah is delivering a message from Yahweh to the people who were in bondage and wondering, are we ever going to get the long-awaited 
kingdom that you promised through David and through Abraham before him? Is it ever going to come? We look around and it looks impossible from our perspective. We're totally under bondage in Babylon and, and, and the temple has been destroyed. And what are we going to do? And God says, I'm God. Is anything too hard for me? So we should persevere and we should pray. We should pray. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Boldly to the throne of grace. So we may find mercy and grace in time of need. God's throne of judgment is a throne of grace for those who know the Lord Jesus. Undeserved merit, undeserved love, an undeserved gift. That's what grace is. We deserve hell because we're sinners and that's the penalty of sin. But instead, we get eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. Our sovereign creator of the universe, God the Son, will be merciful and gracious. Merciful giving us, or merciful not giving us what we deserve and gracious giving us what we don't deserve, a special gift. And this is what makes him better than anything Judaism or the world has to offer. So what unexplained crisis are you facing? What horizon is bearing down on you? What unknown mystery lies ahead? You know, wouldn't it be great if we could see around the corner or see down the road? If we could, we wouldn't need faith, right? And God would just, you know, beam us up to heaven the moment we placed our faith in Christ. But He's got a job for us to do. We're all called to fulfill the Great Commission and be here and proclaim His goodness and His glory and mingle with you know, this world until He either calls us home because we die or He calls us home at the rapture. And in the meantime, we don't, we're not able to look around the corner. We're not able to see over the horizon. So instead, we have this open door for us that leads straight into an advocate who's always there for us, always interceding for us. So have you seen your priest lately? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, you are an approachable God. You're an almighty God, a sovereign, holy, just, righteous God, but you are approachable because of the blood of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who opened up a new and living way for us. And it's in his precious name that we pray today. Amen.